Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. I had the absolute pleasure of spotlighting a great friend for this episode, Robert Kadarian. If you like New York City, real estate, or have an interest in social media, you will enjoy this episode. I'm exploring a new idea here. How do other industries relate to our development work? Robert is a real estate broker who is first in his class. He talks to us about his field, and then we learn about his Instagram handle and how he has developed a following. Robert came to Compass as a real estate broker after a successful career as a journalist who has always loved historic houses. Robert developed his love for older architecture during his time as an editor at Curbed, the urbanism, design, and real estate website, where he penned the column Period Dramas. Before Curbed, Robert was the assistant to the editor-in-chief of Departures Magazine, where he learned the value of exacting detail, meticulous organization, and unparalleled customer service. Robert also maintains the popular historic house-themed Instagram account at Not Enough Hangers. Robert is so excited that he gets to channel his passion for architecture, which first got started when he was an art history major at Williams College. Robert grew up just outside of Boston and currently lives in a Harlem brownstone where he and his boyfriend love to cook and entertain. After the episode, I will draw parallels I see between his work and ours and how we can learn from him to level up. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So we met in 2011. We studied abroad together in Rome. Yeah, 10 years ago this month, we met for the first time. We had a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, here we are. Yeah, so I was so excited to bring you on. It may seem surprising to some people. Why would I bring on? I mean, aside from the fact that you're my friend, why would I bring on a real estate broker? What does that have to do with development? To me, it feels very natural because I want to talk with you just generally about closing deals and how you work with clients. But then I also want to talk about how you've really harnessed your passion for real estate and grown it into something much bigger and how other people can think about doing that for themselves. So I think we'll go in that order today. Okay, fantastic. People love these real estate shows, love it or list it. Million Dollar Listing, I mean, Selling Sunset. Um, Love that one. All of those shows, which I confess I don't really watch, but I know I know of the shows. Are they accurate? I mean, what is your day-to-day like? It's kind of similar to asking somebody that works in magazines if The Devil Wears Prada is accurate. <laughs> I know they like, there are like some things that are like word for word identical to how they are in real life. And there are some things that are just so blown out of proportion in you know, for the effect. My day-to-day is very, very different. There are some days that are completely spent at home working on very unglamorous things like board packages for condo or co-op deals, working on just regular client emails. And then there are some days where you do get to look at really fabulous real estate and you're out and about and walking all over a specific neighborhood or covering various neighborhoods and having a lot of very client-facing interactions. And then there are days that straddle the line between the two where you need to get some office work done and then you also need to do some showings. My day will often change very rapidly. Like my schedule is very 
unpredictable. On the one hand, I could be at the office all day. On the other hand, I could be showing an apartment in two and a half hours. I'm like, I just don't know. Are you comfortable with that fluidity or was that something that you had to learn how to be more comfortable with? I love a very rigid set schedule and I really don't like spontaneity. And that was something that I did have to grow to become accustomed to Mm -hmm. and have faith that like your schedule will work out for like the best. You know, basically every broker has understood and felt these changes before. So I feel like a good broker should be understanding and flexible when possible. It's definitely a learned an acquired taste. It reminds me of the few times that I've showed up at office buildings for meetings with donors and they they cancel right then. Totally. There are definitely times when you're on your way to a showing and then the showing gets canceled. You just need to roll with it. It's all about the clients. Yeah. How do you build relationships with them? Because so for a lot of the listeners today, we manage portfolios of donors and we're thinking about long game we may be looking to get one major gift from them or we're thinking about an annual gift and then a gift two years from now. Is that similar? Like, would you sell something to someone more than once? Uh, Talk us through that. Oh, yes. There's always the potential for people to acquire multiple properties. I mean, people go through different life changes that will require them to move. You know, often when someone gets married, they may want to purchase an apartment together for the first time. You know, and it may be like a two bedroom. Then let's say they start a family and three years later, they now have two kids and their two bedroom is too small. So now they're looking to sell that apartment and buy a three bedroom or a four bedroom, whatever. So you definitely need to think about things in terms of, in terms of a long game. Like in sales, you need to really think like long-term because a lot of the times people, especially if they're first-time home buyers, will take a while to make that first purchase. You know, you may be looking with that person for several months and then closing the deal also takes several months. And then you need to maintain that relationship just through, I mean, I just like to stay in touch with people. I'm just a naturally someone who values relationships but if you stay in touch with them and you stay top of mind then when they're looking to make that next change they'll go back to you um like recently this fall i closed a condo sale on the upper east side with a client of mine who she and her husband got married a little over a year ago but we had been looking over a year and a half like first a little casually Then Mm -hmm. during COVID, they became more serious because they realized that their apartment like that they were currently in really didn't work for them. And then over the summer, they decided to take advantage of the softening market. And we did a deal that closed right before Thanksgiving. And I first met them probably early 2019, I would say, if not late 2018. What are examples of ways that you stay in touch? I did a rental deal with a client, um, with a landlord um, who just moved to a new apartment and like staying in touch with them by saying like, hey, how are things going with the, with the tenant? Do you need any help? Like, here's the most recent market report for Manhattan if you're interested in seeing where the market's at after the COVID kind of like slump of the summer. But social media is also a really great way to stay in touch with like large groups of people. Obviously the 
personal contact, the kind of that individual one-on-one email or phone call, depending on who your client is, they may appreciate a written communication more than a phone call or or something. Um, But for like my most important clients, I'll do personalized, you know, tailored communications with them either, you know. Yeah. So it's like your top, your top people, the ones that have the most likelihood to close on bigger pieces of paper. Yeah. Just let them know that you're still thinking about them. Do you ever become friends with your clients or do you try to keep a, a boundary there? I like to keep a boundary. I definitely am friendly with clients. And like, if somebody asked, you know, I have gone to dinner with them before I have gotten drinks with them before. Um, I think it's helpful when you maintain a certain professional distance because it makes it easier to have more difficult conversations with them. If you need to give them some kind of like honest advice or ask them, because when you're doing a real estate transaction, you're kind of accessing a the most personal information, you know, these people's financials history, um, credit scores, like all of this stuff, which people are very guarded about. And I think it's helpful when you maintain a certain professional facade. I think it, it maintains a sense of like trust and boundary for both sides. So in terms of closing deals and negotiating, how mm-hmm. do you do it? Let's say I'm representing the buyer and I take them to see an apartment, they decide that they really like it and they want to put in an offer. Um, I then have a conversation with them about what they're comfortable paying, what they want to start with, what they want, you know, what their opening offer wants to be, what the deal breakers are for the apartment, how much they're willing to spend on the apartment, like what is their absolute ceiling. And a negotiation is really just a conversation. It's really a conversation between two people. I mean, the priority for everybody should be closing the deal, but my com- my negotiations really just start off either as an email or a phone call saying, you know, they, they love the apartment. They really see themselves there. They want to move forward with it. They're open. You know, they would like to offer this amount and then the various terms, you know, if they're doing an all cash deal, if they're doing financing, if they want a contingency on anything, if anything's included, and then you just wait for a response from the seller. And then the conversation continues and it's like a back and forth. My manager kind of equates it to a seesaw action, like your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. And you usually go through a couple of rounds of that before hopefully agreeing upon a price. Once you arrive at an accepted offer though, the deal is really far from being closed. From then you proceed to a due diligence process that the before the contract is signed. So at this point, it's really just a verbal agreement and it's contingent upon a successful due diligence process that's executed by the buyer's attorney. The buyer's attorney will look into the condo building or the co-op building and see how healthy that building is. How are the financials? Is the board in harmony? Um, Are there any pending lawsuits against the building? Are there any issues with the apartment itself? a very thorough investigation of, you know, the history of the building and a little bit into where the building is going. And if that is successful, then we hopefully sign the contract, at which point the deal is, I would say, 75% of the way there. Things can still fall apart. You sign the contract, then you go to put together the board package. 
then if you're doing a condo or a co-op, it's a slightly different sort of process, similar but different. Then you hopefully get approval for the board package and that process may take two-ish months, maybe more. Wow. Then you, once you get approval, you can move to close. From approval to close is usually like, I don't know, one to two weeks maybe. So you really have to be patient. You really do have to be patient. I mean, yeah. the, the deal that I just closed in Brooklyn, we got board approval in mid-December, but we didn't close until the first week of January because of the holidays and, and everything. But the night before, usually the day before closing, you have a walkthrough where the person, the buyer, goes through the apartment and tests everything, makes sure that the apartment is in the same condition that they originally saw it in. And there are definitely times when some things come up and then things need to be renegotiated and the deal could potentially fall apart at the walkthrough if something isn't included that's in the contract. So it's really like, a, it's a multi-step long-term process that once you've done it a couple of times, you understand how it will go, but you need to plan for, for hiccups at every step of the way because it could happen. How many deals in process do you have at any given time? It varies. I mean, right now I have one contract, one apartment in contract that is hopefully going to close in mid-February, but we'll see what date that ends up closing. We still have a couple of loose ends to tie up before we submit the board package. And then I'm actively looking with a whole host of buyers. So right now I have one deal in the works, like officially in the works, but I have a number of other irons in the fire where people mm -hmm. are actively searching. Do you have a goal of how many deals you want to close annually or is it more based on commission dollars? I am trying to switch to a sales volume. So like this year I'd like to close 10, 10 million in sales. Each transaction, you know, you could have three transactions, you know, let's say that the goal is I want to do three transactions. And, you know, those transactions could be really big. They could be really small. So yeah, you could sell one $5 million apartment and that's half of your year. Exactly. So I think it's helpful to do it in terms of sales volume. But yeah, my goal is to do 10 million this year. So Exciting. yeah. Your Instagram account is one of my favorites. I love following Thank you. Thank you. It's called Not Enough Hangers. So yeah. tell us when it went from personal to professional and how you've built almost a 50,000 follower base. I think officially it went from personal to professional when I switched to real estate in 2018 from being in, in editorial and being, being more of a writer and an editor. Yeah, it started to gain steam in, I don't know, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there when I just started posting about older houses because that's just what I was interested in. I've always really liked looking at old houses for sale and learning about old houses and being interested in like how architecture reflects the way that we live or the way that we did live. Yeah, everybody always asks me like, how did you grow such a following? And like, I really don't know how I did it. I just posted what I found interesting and what really appealed to me. Um, and it's definitely changed over time. I used to post, like now I post a lot, almost exclusively houses that are actively for sale. Mm -hmm. Before I used to just post 
beautiful photos of old houses. So when it was, when you named it Not Enough Hangers, were you doing more around fashion? Yeah, it originally started because it was a Tumblr account that was about menswear in like okay. 2010 or 2009. And then I just got Not Enough Hangers on like Instagram and Twitter because that's just what I did. And then I started posting to the account, not really thinking about it. And then, you know, thinking about the name and thinking that this would become something. And then I got verified. And then I started hearing that if you change your verification, your name when you're verified, then you lose the verification. So now I was like, okay, well, I guess I, I'll still be not enough hangers. Like I've always wanted to change it to not enough houses, but I <laughs> don't, but now it's like a thing or now it's like it a is. thing for me at least. And I just really, I feel like I would be sad if it, if it went away, but there are definitely times when I think it would be nice to have it just be like Robert Kadarian or something. Mm-hmm. You've always loved old houses. Do you, yeah. Why? Can you put words to why you're so passionate about that? I just always appreciated the sense of history to it. I just really, I find it fascinating when you, anything has a past life to it. Um, and with an old house, it may have gone through several families. It may have gone through just one family over several generations. But I think that each room has an interesting story to tell. And often you see layouts that may not be popular anymore or may not reflect current lifestyles, but reflect how we lived at a certain time. And I just find that to be very, very interesting. And that may be why you loved Rome so much. Yeah, I mean, completely. I, I, I I was an art history major. I, something that I loved about art history was how the artwork reflected a political and social climate of a specific time. And that, you know, these people weren't just creating beautiful images and sculptures because they liked, you know, marble to look a certain way. It's because there were other factors that were coming together to produce this work. And it's very similar in architecture where there are a variety of social and economic factors that are coming together to make a colonial revival house, to make a a Greek revival house and explain why a house was built in the way that it was. So you've done something brilliant, which I honestly, I delight in this. You have posted the building for the uh, marvelous Mrs. Mizell and the apartment for the undoing. I think there was a third one that you did. How did you get the idea to do that? That was so much fun. Oh, thank you. It was honestly just because I was interested in it. And like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I mean, everybody that sees that show talks about the apartment. Everybody that sees the show is like, oh my God, that apartment's just so gorgeous. So I was like, let's see. I was like, where was it filmed? Is it based off of anything? And it brought me down this like rabbit hole about the apartment building that it's set at and what the true layouts of the apartment building were and what the history of that building is. And it very much tracks, like the building that the show was set at is like one of the fanciest buildings in the neighborhood. And um, Which by the way, it's on the block of my building, fun fact, it's in the Columbia neighborhood. Yeah, it's, it's on it's on Riverside between 112th and 113th. It's a beautiful, beautiful building, 404 Riverside Drive. The 
undoing apartment, the exact same thing. You know, the, that apartment isn't as central to the plot line as the Maisel apartment is, but mm-hmm. you can't get around that really cool architecture in the undoing. So I was like, you know, what what is the story here? And the fact that it does coincide with the largest apartment ever constructed in New York City history was just a, a, a wonderful surprise and bonus. Um, and then I think I did one on what I think the the succession apartment that duplex was based off of the um, yes. father's yes. duplex. And I have a very good idea of what it's based off of, but it's unsubstantial. Like I, I haven't confirmed it. Like no one has confirmed it to me, but I feel very, very confident in what it's based off of. So I remember you told me a couple years ago that you go to broker open houses and I didn't know what that was. Can you tell us what that is, explain it, and then I want to talk more about that. Broker open houses are when brokers representing similar apartments, often in a similar price range, will coordinate open houses during the day. And what it's for, like what these open houses are for, is not for clients to come and see the apartments, but so brokers can go and preview apartments and see what's out there, understand what a specific price point will get you in a specific neighborhood. So you'll get these email blasts that will say, Carnegie Hill three bedroom broker open house this Thursday. So you'll see five or six, or you'll be able, you'll have the opportunity to see maybe like five or six, three bedrooms in the neighborhood of Carnegie Hill and understand that, okay, for a three bedroom in Carnegie Hill, they will run you between like 2.7 million and 3.5 million or, you know, four and a half million or whatever. And they will be all over the city and there'll be various, you know, at all price points and all different types of sizes. You know, I've seen broker open houses for super luxury buildings that will be 15 plus million dollars. They are a really great way to get an education of what current inventory is like, um, because you can see an apartment online, but when you actually go and see the apartment in person, it's a very different, uh, Yeah, it can be a very different situation. Now, do you go to those because you enjoy them and they're fun for you, or do you go to them because they make you better at your job? Both. It depends what is being shown. Sometimes it's more for fun. And then like making it making me better at my job is just like a nice byproduct of that. Other times I will have a client in mind and a broker open house will beautifully coincide with it. An example in our world of development, let's say you're going to see someone who has a gallery as well and you have a meeting with them, but you go to the gallery in advance to see what's going on with them, to understand them better, to have something more to talk about in the meeting. And it's like, doing that isn't necessarily going to mean that you're gonna close the gift or that you're gonna close a bigger gift. But I do think it's going to make you have a better, more memorable, impactful conversation with that donor. Yeah. There are total, there are definitely similarities there. I think that, you know, in every, in every industry, there are, there are ways that we can all kind of like prepare behind the scenes and, and uh, mm-hmm. make ourselves stronger and, you know, that much more effective. How have you found mentors in your work? I've been really lucky in that I've kind of organically found mentors in every job that I've had. That's the um, best way to find them. Yes. 
So when I transitioned to real estate, I did, I started working with a couple of different brokers, just trying to see like more experienced brokers, trying to see like who I jived with. You know, I met a couple of people and a couple of people like didn't work out and it's like totally fine. You know, you just like anything else, a personal relationship. And then I started working with this broker who is one of the highest producing brokers in all of Manhattan. Her name is Pamela Dark. She was at the firm that I joined. I originally joined Stribling and then Stribling was acquired by Compass. So now we're all at Compass, but she had joined Stribling about like 25 years before I joined Stribling. (laughs) And um, she's been doing this for a really long time. And uh, she truly is one of the highest producing brokers um, with one of the best reputations in all of Manhattan. And we happened to sit next to each, like our desks just happened to be next to each other. Then one day, she had a client that she didn't have the bandwidth to take on. So she asked if I would be interested in helping to work with that client. That went well. And then she gave me another client and then another client and another client. And then we developed this working association and she has turned into this like wonderful support system. I mean, she loves to help and teach and she's just kind of like naturally kind of like nurturing in that way. And she like flat out told me like, I really want to be your mentor. And I was very happy to, to have that. And I still am. I mean, I, I talk to her almost every day. Um, she helps me with negotiations. She helps me with pitching listings. She's there if I need her. She's there if I don't need her. Like she's, she's just, she's wonderful. I'm very, very wonderful. And I'm incredibly thankful to, to have her in my corner because when you're a young agent, it's very, it can be hard to get started up because there are just so many agents out there that even if you're really good friends with them and you're like, oh, this person is a definite, you know, client of mine. Like I've known them for years. They'll totally sell with me. They'll totally buy with me. If they know that you're super green, you know, there are a million agents out there. Chances are you're not the only agent they know. They'll go with somebody else. So it's helpful for me when I can say, yes, I am in this industry for just under three years, but I have the power of a incredibly successful, experienced broker to guide any process that we're going to be overseeing. So I was really, I was really lucky in that. What do you think it was that got Pamela Dark's attention in those early days that made her decide to give you a listing and see what would happen? I think she thought I was kind of dependable and responsible and that I could be trusted with the daughter of a client of hers who was looking to rent her first apartment in New York after graduating from college. Um, And she and her roommate from college were moving to the city to start their first jobs. And Pamela thought that I would be a good fit. And Yeah, it's like Gen 2. (laughs) Yeah, truly. It's been so great to have your wonderful energy and to hear a little bit behind the scenes of the Not Enough Hangers Enterprise. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, this was an absolute pleasure. I'm always happy to talk more if you ever want it. I would love to close with my signature question to you, Robert. What do you know for sure? That I am going to have a martini the moment dry January is over. (laughs) That's what I know for sure. (laughs) I can't wait. Thank you so 
so much for coming yeah. on. And that that martini that you're talking about is potentially the second episode where we talk about cooking and the martini that you yeah. made. Yeah, we, we'll get John on here. Talk with John. Great. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Oh. So there were several things that we talked about and questions that I asked that were specifically geared towards the way we do our work. And the first thing that I noticed that was very similar was the need to stay flexible. Robert said his day could change on a dime. We need to do the same thing. We don't know where our donors are coming from mentally, physically. We don't know what else is going on in their lives and we need to be ready to meet them where they are. I loved Robert's advice about staying in touch. And it was funny because he basically described a three-tiered model of the high touch, which we would do for our top donors, the checking in that you would do for recent encounter or recent gift. And then the third was his social media, which I think, you know, we can rely on our institutions to do with their own social media. But it's it begs an interesting question. How could we keep up with the masses in a way that maybe is on social media, or maybe it looks different. What would that be like? Boundaries. I think having boundaries with donors is so important, and it's something that I would like to talk more about on another episode, but I think Robert was spot on that keeping boundaries is important so that you can have those hard conversations when you need to. Broker open houses. What would it look like if fundraisers had broker open houses? Of course, it wouldn't be in person, but what if there was some sort of thing where we shared types of gifts that people are working on. I'm just fascinated by that idea. I also though wanna take the other angle, which is using the open house as a metaphor for truly exploring other things that your donor is interested in and doing your homework, reading up on them or reading the book they wrote, literally. And lastly, mentors. Robert beautifully described how he built this relationship with a very powerful person in his industry he talks about how it starts with trust and delivering on something small and then the projects get bigger and bigger and it can grow to be something really amazing. Thank you for listening. This was a really fun episode. Let me know if you like the idea of me comparing other industries with fundraising. Please connect with me on Instagram at devdebrief. Don't forget at not enough hangers. Thanks for joining us and have a great week.